Background. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Septuagint. Was presented by David Crabtree on August 3, 2015, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. I have, there's a little outline here that, and my comments here will be relatively short. I don't think there's a whole lot that I need to talk about. So this is the New Testament passage, which refers to the Old Testament passage we just looked at. Written by the Apostle Matthew, and we've already discussed how well-trained he was in, in Judaism of the time. The context of this passage, well, this is the gospel of Jesus that he has written. And there is a comment made by, I can't remember what his initials are, but France, who wrote a commentary on Matthew, which I think is very good. He points out, it is not a biography, nor a history, nor a compendium of Jesus' teachings. That's not its purpose. It has a different purpose. It's a gospel. That's helpful to me. I think that's very true. Certainly it has those things in it. It has some history. It has his teachings in it. But its purpose is to be a gospel. And I'm convinced the reason that he wrote his, his work is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah that had been predicted in the Tanakh. Matthew has already given the genealogy. Now he's describing the birth. And in Matthew 1, he says, Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying. And then, and then that's where the verse occurs from Isaiah. So Matthew is seeing this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, and that's one of the things we'll have to talk about is what does he mean by a fulfillment. Okay. There is a textual issue here, and I'm going to talk. This will get a little bit technical, but I'll try to make it not too technical. But it is a textual issue that is of significance here and hotly debated. I got online and looked up articles on this particular issue, and there are quite a number, and they are staking out pretty strong positions and in opposition one to another. Here is the issue. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, was originally written in Hebrew. It is believed by scholars that there is a textual tradition that is more reliable than the other textual traditions of the Hebrew Bible. Now, what I mean by textual traditions is they didn't have photocopy machines, so they were copied by scribes, and that copy then is passed down, and another scribe is going to eventually copy that, and another will copy that. And so, if you look at the existing copies, the ones that can be found, they all have their own genealogy that mistakes that may have been made up here, those, some of those are going to get passed down. Okay. So, they think that the best 
textual tradition is what they call the Masoretic Text. And so the abbreviation used there is MT, Masoretic Text. But the Tanakh was translated into Greek in about 300 B.C. because Jews had been spread out throughout the Mediterranean world and areas beyond. And so there were Jews in the diaspora, and many of them were no longer speaking Hebrew as their native language and wanted to have access to the Tanakh. And so it was translated into Greek, which was the language that was most widely spoken at the time. And according to tradition, there were 70 scholars that translated it. And depending on the tradition, some would say there is the tradition that all 70 of them individually sat down and translated the Bible, the Old Testament, and then they got those together, compared them, and they were all exactly the same. Hard to believe, and I would not have been one of the 70. Yes? Clarify, was it 300 B.C. or 300 B.C.? B.C. I think the notes have done in the 3rd century A.D. That's wrong. It's B.C. That's why I wouldn't have been one of the 70. (laughs) So we've got M.T., Masoretic Text, and L.X.X. as the abbreviations for these two things. This is the Roman numeral for 70. And this stands for Masoretic Text, okay? So was Septuagint not from Masoretic Text? Well, that's, it does not appear to have been. So if you look at the Septuagint, it, it, I haven't done a lot of comparisons of the Septuagint with the Masoretic Text, but where I have done it, and mostly it's been looking at Jeremiah where I've done the most of that, there is a lot left out of the Septuagint that is in the Masoretic Text. So the Septuagint version of Jeremiah is considerably shorter than the Masoretic text. And in some cases, there's not just things left out, but there are clearly different wordings that could not be from the same, where the Septuagint couldn't have been a translation of a copy of the Masoretic text. And there are, I wouldn't say there's a lot of those, but there are a number of them. Yeah. Also, contrary to the 70 scholars that translating identically, actually much more likely that individual books were translated by different by people different. at different times. Yes. Thus giving... Yes. Um, by different people. Time. Yes, yes, yes. Because the character of the Septuagint for one book of the Old Testament can be quite different from the character of the Septuagint from another Old Testament book. Yeah. But having said that, there are some scholars who would argue that the Septuagint is from a better textual tradition. Yes, another question. The early church fathers, did they rely more on, to your knowledge, to rely on the Septuagint? Or are you talking about the church fathers? Are you talking about the authors of the New Testament? The early church fathers, not the authors of the New Testament. I don't know the answer to that question. If we're talking about the New Testament, to the extent that I have looked at it, sometimes the New Testament author will use the Septuagint translation. Sometimes it looks like they have translated a text that is the Masoretic text or very similar to it. And other times it will be kind of a combination or maybe their own translation or maybe from a whole different textual recension. So the New Testament is in Greek, isn't it? So does that mean that Jesus spoke Greek? That is hotly debated. But there's a book by Sean Frayne who writes about Galilee at the time of Jesus. 
And he argues that Jesus and the apostles, who were fishermen, they lived in a highly cosmopolitan environment where they were catching fish and selling it to Greeks and they were selling it to Hebrews, to Jews. And he argues they were probably very competent in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, at least in those three. But there are others who would argue, dispute that and say that other things. Yes? Well, I was under the impression, but maybe I'm wrong in my memories of why, but I was under the impression that the Septuagint was used greatly by the Pharisaic crowd and the, the Jews of the time of Jesus, but since it was viewed as kind of confiscated by the early Jewish Christians, you know, Paul and Matthew, that the Jews who didn't convert to Christianity abandoned, kind of left, the, just kind of abandoned the Septuagint and went back to the Hebrew. There are a couple of passages in the Septuagint where the wording is more favorable towards the Christian understanding of the Old Testament, such that I have seen articles where Jews are arguing that the Septuagint was commandeered by Christians and tinkered with. So that argument is made. I've seen it made, but I don't know whether Jews abandoned the Septuagint soon after the time of Christ. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, in favor of the Hebrews, and that's how you got the Masoretic uh, family or going. But in the diaspora, the language that they would have known, oftentimes their native language, would have been Greek. So that's why the Septuagint is nice. It's in their mother tongue. In uh, the land of Israel, I don't know of any record, this is my area of study, of the Septuagint being used in synagogues or strictly among Jews. It was a diaspora. Oh, no. So in terms of the gospel, that all takes place within one <laughs> There's also a tradition in Judaism that one of the worst things that ever happened in the world was the creation of the Septuagint. Yes. Yes. Because what happened when the shifting, when you have to shift from a Greek way of thinking, okay, to a Greek way of thinking, you already lose a lot. Okay. And then a lot of what was said in regards to Christianity taking the, the Septuagint on, I think that follows. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we're dealing with here, as it turns out, is there is a significant difference between the word that occurs in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew word, and the word that was chosen to translate that into the Septuagint. Now, there are a lot of articles on this particular issue, and it's, the evidence is a bit difficult to sort out. And in the articles that I looked at, they tend to be pretty tendentious. That is, they know what position they want They know which side they want to win out, and they argue accordingly. So it's a complicated issue, but just in very simplistic terms, here is the nature of the issue. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 7 is Alma. And Alma, it is a young woman of marriageable age. That seems to be the basic meaning. In Hebrew culture, that would have been almost always a virgin. So it has associated with it the concept of virgin, but it is not 
a word that's designed to answer the question, has this person had sexual experience? Okay. There is another word that comes closer to answering that question, but it too apparently does not actually, is not designed to answer that question. And that's batula, is that, Carl, is that right? Is that the right pronunciation, batula? Which comes closer to having the connotation of virgin, but again, it's not specifically answering that question, has this person had sexual experience? Okay. So, if we take all of the possible meanings of Alma, they, they fall in this circle, conveniently. And all of the possible meanings of Betula, they fall into this circle, conveniently. Okay, so the word that was used in Hebrew to translate Alma is the word Parthenos. That Parthenos is more closely associated with our word virgin. It comes closer, but it too does not answer the question. It's not designed to answer the question, has this person had sexual experience? But it comes closer to that than either of these two words. Okay? And that's the word that was used in the Septuagint to translate Alma. Okay. So what's interesting here is that the Septuagint translation appears to be more propitious for the use in Matthew than did either Alma or Betula. Okay? Why? There are Articles written as to why in the Septuagint they chose to use this word to translate that, and it's not clear. Some people say that they were tinkering with it, and some say that that tinkering happened after the birth of Christ. But I don't know. Are there versions of the Septuagint texts that exist that predate Jesus? Do we have the actual manuscripts from the Septuagint? I don't think we do. So... I don't know why this word was used to translate Alma. Did you say that there was another word? Another word choice. Oh, certainly there were other words that could have been used. Greek words that could have been, yes, definitely. Okay. Do you understand the problem here, the textual problem? The, the Septuagint seems to be particularly favorable for Matthew's use in that context than either of these Hebrew words would have been. And that's the word that was used in the Septuagint. In Matthew, he uses the Septuagint as the text that he's quoting using this word. Okay. All right. Go figure it out.